Hi, good day. This is Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks for listening. This is the 105th edition of the show, and it is Wednesday, the 13th of April. Thanks for being with us. On the program today, I'm going to be sharing a conversation I had with filmmaker Mia Donovan about her recent work, Dope is Death, an incredible film that looks at the story of the ways that the Young Lords and Black Panthers brought acupuncture to the South Bronx. The interview includes many important points, so I want to get right to it. Here's my conversation with filmmaker Mia Donovan. It touches upon so much yeah. because it's so historically specific mm-hmm. and also geographically specific because it the story starts in New York during the late 60s, early 70s when black and brown communities were being flooded by heroin. Mm-hmm. So there was a huge heroin epidemic and this was when methadone maintenance were, clinics were starting to pop up everywhere, and that was considered the solution. Mm-hmm. And radical political activists, which really began with the Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. started to discuss heroin and methadone in a political context mm-hmm. of tools to suppress resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it was that's where the title Dope is Death comes from, because today in a harm reduction context, yeah. it sounds quite extreme. And yeah. even though I believe what they were doing, it set the seeds, planted the seeds for harm reduction today. At that time, there was a re- they were so politically yeah. opposed mm-hmm. to heroin and methadone. For this reason, they really did see it as chemi- a chemical warfare waged to pacify black and brown resistance after the civil rights movement, you know, like that, they, there was mm-hmm. a really, uh, and they were young, they were like 20, mm-hmm. 19, 20, 21, 22. Mm-hmm. They were super over, like really zealous about their ideas. Mm-hmm. And so in that context, they were looking for, even though they were opposed to all these drugs politically, it was still a huge problem getting people off of these very addicted drugs. Sure. So Dr. Matulu Shakur discovered Chinese medicine and acupuncture, particularly in Chinatown with his comrades in the Asian American movement, and thought, can we bring this to the South Bronx? And that's sort of how they started to experiment as a treatment modality, like non-chemical treatment modality. So that's, it's a lot, and there's a whole context to that. And then the connection, there's a connection between Montreal and the South Bronx, because at that time, the only acupuncture school in North America outside of Chinatown was in Montreal. And yeah. the the school here was in French, but the director and his son decided to cater a program in English to mentor six of these political activists, which is pretty amazing, um, including Dr. Matulu Shakur, who is Tupac Shakur's stepfather. And so that's the film touches upon all this. Um, so just just to locate like one point that you brought up, and I just remember the scene in the film where Dr. Matulu Shakur is talking about people who are struggling with addiction coming when they first opened the clinic. And he's talking about um, harm reduction practices and sort of like therapeutic practices even before they learned acupuncture. And he talked about um, massaging people's ears and being with people just even physically and their feet. I remember, and he, and in the film, he was talking about how that really calmed people down, uh, and sort of also the cultural context of people feeling welcome. 
Can you maybe describe what was going down? Because I think often if people think about like the militant groups of this time, you know, shorthand version, if we think about the Young Lords or the Black Panthers, that sort of community aspect of, you know, whether it's medical uh, practices, you know, um, but there's also school programs, uh, after, after school lunch programs, um, health centers more generally. But yeah, can you just maybe describe a bit more what they were doing and, and why that was so important? Yeah, so it's, I mean, there was so much going on. Um, one way to approach it is um, when I spoke to the members of the Young Lords, mm-hmm. who were the Puerto Rican kind of counterpart to the Black Panther Party, they describe, Felipe Luciano describes in the film how when they first started, they went around to the community Mm. of the South Bronx and uh, Spanish Harlem and asked Mm. people, what do you guys need me to do? Like, what do you want us to do? Mm -hmm. And the first thing everybody said was like, get the garbage picked up because there was a garbage strike at that time in New York. Mm. So there was garbage piled up in the streets. Mm. So they really started by, that was their first initiative Mm. was, they called it the... um, I forget what the garbage initiative, but they, they basically yeah. forced the, 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 the city that, cause they wouldn't go North of like 100th and 10th street or mm-hmm. something like, cause of the, so they stayed in the upper West side, upper East side. So they, they really f- put a lot of pressure. They staged protests to make mm-hmm. sure the city would clean up their neighborhood and it worked. And then from there, they actually, their second initiative was they hijacked a um, X-ray machine that in, in it, that was going around Manhattan because there was a, tuberc- a TB problem, tuberculosis problem in Harlem, but the truck, this x-ray machine truck didn't go to S- South Bronx or Harlem. It stayed in the, in Manhattan, in lower Manhattan. Mm. So they had, but they knew their, their community, they, they knew from going door to door that people were really sick. Wow. And at mm. that time there was the Lincoln hospital that was serving in the South Bronx, 400,000 residents. So it was in the neighbors, the, the residents called it the butcher shop. Like people were afraid to go there. So they, they really, that's, that was how they first got involved in healthcare. They took over this truck. They, and the technicians were on board. So the tech, they all, the, it went, the truck went up to Harlem and mm-hmm. uh, started uh, testing people. Wow. So they were doing, this is just to like, yeah. Like it's they called them survival programs. So everything they did was to serve the people that yeah. were underserved. Like the Black Panthers also with the breakfast programs. Um they were involved in housing rights, uh, you know, providing transportation to people to go visit their families, members of prisons. You know, they were doing a lot of things, um, providing food, like just just like a lot of things to serve their community. And then as we know, like uh Hoover saw that as such a huge threat, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there was, it's it's just fascinating. What I think really shocked me when I first started looking into this history was mm. how, you know, the Black Panther Party mm. was really considered such a huge threat to the sta- the stability or, you know, like the status quo of the U.S., United States because of, um, you know, I guess, because of what they were doing, <laughs> they were taking care. It's really about self-determination. The government didn't want these communities to be, to, to have self-determination, basically. They wanted them to become dependent, to stay dependent. And these actions, if, I mean, in your film, Mia, Dope His Death, you see how these actions transformed policy, right? And so you talk about the Lincoln Hospital and the action of the young lords to occupy the hospital. And we, we hear about like, occupy actions like in the last 
15 years, but you know, this is going back to decades, generations before. Um, and one of the demands was like a harm, uh, I, I, I don't remember the term, but something like a harm reduction center or, but yeah, so, so a clinic was created out of this occupation. Um, yeah, can you just maybe just detail that a bit more? Yeah. Yeah, so there was um, a huge occupation of the Lincoln Hospital mm-hmm. in July 1970, and that was in response to over 200, wait, sorry, over 2,000 complaints that residents uh, were, were, like, that they had gathered, the, the Young Lords in particular, and some of the Black Panthers mm. were going door-to-door and gathering complaints, and they mm. set up a table in the hospital, mm. which at the time it was approximately 70% Puerto Ricans, and there was barely any Spanish-speaking personnel, staff. staff. Okay. So they oh, would yeah. also volunteer with patients yeah. to be translators. So they were involved, in, yeah. very involved. Yeah, yeah. And then they decided to take over the hospital to have more con- community control. In the, hmm. and, and then from there, two months later, the one they had a huge list of demands, and one of them was to have a drug detoxification program, yeah. which opened up a few months later. Wow. And... That was to be run by members of the community, and this is where it, the, the the seeds of harm reduction start. Like with former heroin users or active heroin users who were trying to, to um, you know, t- to find treatment. You know, like they were basically. Yeah. St- but their motive at that time was really we have to get people off drugs. So it was yeah. a different. Yeah. And um, then from there, after they got funded from a methadone maintenance or a methadone program. So at the beginning, they had to use methadone to get the grants. Wow. But then the more they, you know, they were always uncomfortable with it. So once they started to bring in acupuncture wow. and st- once they started to, you know, mm-hmm. stop using methadone, that's when the, the, the heat, yeah. came, you know, got that's when they became a red flag. Wow. And, wow. um, Eventually, the program was shut down, but for those eight years, it thrived. And your film documents. Yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to your film, right, like a lot of the sort of historical details that you're talking about, about the sort of intricacies of like the urban dynamics in New York uh, between the South Bronx and Harlem and Manhattan and the, the, the political uh, movements that existed, the Panthers, the Young Lords, there's sort of name recognition for like some of those organizations, but your film really centers in to tell like a very specific story of how the politics all intersected in like one um, example, which I thought was just awesome. But so can you just talk a bit about like, as a filmmaker, like how did you come to say, I want to tell this story? Um, I'm sure it was a complicated process, but I, I guess I'm just wondering like, how do you feel about, engaging with this story as a filmmaker and I can see how many countless hours went into the project uh and seeing that process through and engaging with all the the people involved but like why was it important to share this story today um well I first learned about this story maybe 10 years ago and I began visiting Dr. Matulu Shakur in prison where he was incarcerated around 2013. Mm. Originally, he was supposed to be released in 2016. So the film was originally conceived as a much different project where he would be released and go back into the community to work with Mario, Susan Rosenberg, Jackie Hout, a bunch of the activists and 
his students who became acupuncturists, yeah. acupuncturists. Um, like it was, it was, it was a very different project in the beginning. And then he, when he didn't get, but it was like just something. Um, I didn't have funding for it at that time, but I was just like, you know, wanted to do something. Mm-hmm. But then when he wasn't released in 2016, mm-hmm. that's when I really understood what it meant to be a political prisoner. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just felt so, it just felt so um, frustrating to understand like what what he did, like how important he was, everything he accomplished, mm-hmm. you know, like getting people together, like with healthcare and acupuncture and just, yeah. he still mentors people in prison. Mm-hmm. Like he's an amazing person. And I was just so That's frustrated. Very clear from your film. It was very frustrated mm-hmm. that there was there was no none of this was out there. It's all like he's is all about his crime. So I was like I I started to meet all the other people involved in mm-hmm. the Lincoln Detox Collective mm-hmm. and started gathering these stories. Wow. And then after f- another year, that's when I told Matulu, I went to visit him. I said, "Can you I want to do a story about the Lincoln Detox. Like, how do you feel about that?" And, you know, once he was on board, then everybody was kind of on board. Wow. You know, so wow. I kind of, it, and the, these, this history is known, but it hadn't been recorded in a really, it has since. Like mm-hmm. there's a book that just came out by mm-hmm. Rachel Pagoni. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's uh, in the UK. She just published a book on this history. So like this, it's all coming out now, but it hadn't really hadn't yeah. that yeah. much at that time. Exactly. Um, so I guess it's really just like, I was just so impressed by this movement and so shocked that, people don't know about it and that mm. the not the nada protocol which is being used all over the world today mm-hmm. in harm reduction which yeah. is the five standardized five point ear acupuncture protocol was incorporated in 1985 by dr michael smith but who was there with them at the lincoln hospital because they needed to have a medical doctor to oversee the program because that's how the law was so they you know they weren't wow. you know so mark mike dr michael smith was part of it but he took when everybody went underground and you know sure. like he basically incorporated so so many people doing that on today don't know the real history but this has changed thanks to the film and some other journalists yeah. so nada now if you go on their website they do recognize this history but um i guess that that was just that was my hope you know to do this uh to to just like honor Dr. Shakur's work and every, and just like, I, I also personally have, you know, people in my family who've been on and off of methadone for years. And I just think when I heard about this, how they approached addiction and after going to different drug treatment programs as a teenager for family week for my stepbrother and just the whole, like, just like the 12 step kind of higher power modality, like that's just so like the really strict abstinence based and I think that there's different reasons personally why this story fascinated me and why I wanted to learn more about it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of, um, Mm -hmm. and you know, Dr. Matula Shakur is such an amazing person and he can't even, we weren't, he hasn't even been able to speak publicly on record since 20, 2003. Like you, you, I can't even bring a pencil when I go see him and all requests to be interviewed on the phone or on camera have been denied from me and many other people you know so so like one thing that comes to mind is the um 
So to, to, to do a project like this, Mia, like the amount of research and time and the sort of long-term arc of what you're describing, like I'd heard about Matulu Shakur, of course, um, you know, and David Gilbert and, you know, a lot of political prisoners connected to this moment through activism, right? And I think the, what, I, what I'm trying to get at here is that there's this sort of like within like even like newer generations of activists, there's this idea, well, we need to act now. We need to find ways to support. We need to raise funds for political prisoners. We need to engage in letter writing with prisoners or political prisoners. I mean, the whole incarceration system is obviously a political institution of violence. But what I'm trying to speak to or what I'd be love to hear your reflections on actually is I see like how much time went into this process and the results are not immediate. <laughs> and like that decision to engage in a long-term project that is action-based and, you know, the, the sort of result is, you know, this, this both moving cultural work, but also a, a very serious tool of education about this history that you engage with. I'm just wondering if you could talk, I wanted to ask you this at the screening actually, mm -hmm. but I, I'm just wondering if you could talk about like that idea of like working on a project for such a long term with the politics that you have or that are behind this initiative. Like, I'm sure that sometimes it doesn't feel like it, it probably at times it felt like it's not going anywhere or like, how's this going to get done or where is it even going? And, and just sort of like the importance of trying to see through these larger efforts to document activist history. I, I'm wondering, I, I don't know if that speaks to you at all. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, like, as you're asking me this question, I'm actually thinking how it is an interesting question to ask because it did take me so long. And even though I always felt there was an urgency mm. to bring awareness to Dr. Shakur, um, at the same time, I felt like it had to be done properly mm. and in collaboration mm. with so many people mm. because... Um, and and I also was working very closely with people who are working more directly on his case every day. Uh, so like the the they're the family and friends of Dr. Matula Shakur mm -hmm. who run the website and who are basically literally these it's Susan Rosenberg, Margie Navarro, a bunch of people uh, that have been working literally daily on Matulu's case in some way, like for years. So he has so much support, which is really amazing for political prisoners. That one thing Matulu had told me was that when you're the thing about being what separates, one of the things that separates political prisoners from the po general population mm. is that mm. support, mm. Um, mm. which is great, but it also should remind us that there's so many people without support too. Like it's just really, it's, and even with all this support, it still seems impossible to, to change the system or get him out. You know, it's, it's really, it's really frustrating on so many levels, but I think my commitment was to really just tell a story that would really cement the legacy and do it the right way and not just get it out urgently. I think that's why documentary filmmakers do document ind independent documentary filmmakers like myself do these kind of projects and not something for you know a tv broadcast that has to be done really fast because when you're doing it you're not really thinking 
like now it, it I, I don't it did take a long time but there is so many getting people's trust um you know financing also like if uh, the decision to use a lot of archives was a huge um yeah. a hu- huge undertaking um it, you know like it, it's really hard to do a film like this without resources any documentary so I don't know if that answers the question. It does. It it's, does. It's, I mean, and I think when you're in something, you may not realize how long it, it mm-hmm. it's taken. But also, I think with this film, just uh, being a white woman in Canada, uh, I also was worked so collaboratively with people more than I'd ever worked on anything before. Mm-hmm. So with also like sending transcripts to Dr. Shakur so he could feel involved. Wow. So, uh, but also um, share feedback. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, I think. I mean, I think that I don't know if I don't believe I could have did this film any sooner, but I could have done something sooner. But hmm. would it have had as much of an impact? I don't sure. know. Or sure. Sure. yeah. Well, oh, great. Thank you for sharing those reflections. Um, but on the point of one of the main subjects of the film, which is sort of the process of healing and health in relation to revolutionary movements, you know, I think that's something a lot of people are talking about right now. So in the mainstream world, that's like referred to as self-care or like, you know, taking breaks and so on. But also in the activist worlds, and there is many, there's a lot of conversations about like how to sustain involvement. Um, So I'm wondering if there's like, you know, and I really appreciated that focus on health and well-being. Um, In the film, it's about a very urgent, systemically violent reality in South Bronx. But it does point to how struggles aren't just the struggles for the newsreel, right? The the struggles on an institution, to create alternative institutions, to sustain those, and to, as you described at the beginning of our conversations, to respond to the needs of a community. Um, So, yeah, I'm just wondering, like, when you you looked back at this history, what are some sort of resounding or points of focus on health and well-being that continue to resonate today that that you feel are still important like in relation to activist movements like um in terms of like um thinking about that long-term arc of health and that long-term arc of like of healing that um i would i i get the impression that they're not really like a celebrated like headline in relation to like if we think about all the talk in this woke quote-unquote moment, right, about land back, about Black Lives Matter, all these important movements that have been so, um, have such a history, but have been sort of translated to these hashtags that people think of just protest, but not all this background. Um, yeah, that's a lot. Uh, that's a big question, or I'm just, I'm sharing yeah. my, like, reflections that came up for me in relation to the film, but I, I, if, if you have any thoughts about any of that, please share. No, it's, it's very interesting. I think what, how I can respond is what resonated with me early on researching this film and talking mm-hmm. to everyone that was there at the Lincoln Detox was the emphasis. There was the acupuncture and then there was also what they called political education classes. Mm. But the political education classes was really focused on looking at the individuals in a, 
like a um, a broader context like they understood trauma and they understood the trauma they talked a lot about trauma related to racism mm-hmm. and trauma related to being a black man in the south bronx at that time or a black woman and it, like they were really um and they were so young again. I just find that they were like 20, 21, but they were so, they really understood a lot of this stuff that we hear about now all the time. Like, you know, like with self-care, they didn't articulate it in that way, but they understood that, you know, being that, they understood that society was going to label drug addicts as criminals and stigmatize them, but they understood that, I feel like they understood that drug use was, um, you know, like kind of uh, a broader, it wasn't, I'm sorry, I'm like thinking out loud while I'm talking. Oh, great. Well, but I you. really do find like they spoke, the things that they discussed in their political education class was so much about healing, destigmatizing addiction. And I think that's what we understand today more with harm reduction. But that wasn't, they didn't say that word, but that's what they were doing, you know, because they understood that everybody who was coming in there for treatment have been subjected to racism, uh, police brutality, stigma, you know, like there was a hopelessness and they were like, you, you know, you're not, you weren't born an addict. You weren't born this way. This was like the language that they use. Um, you know, like this was society telling you that you're not worth it, that you're not, mm-hmm. you don't, you, you don't have the same rights of other people. Like they really articulate it. Um, this kind of the, the healing that they did in these classes was really um, in, interesting, you know, for the time. And like, really, I remember thinking it was, um, you know, for myself and what I understood about drug treatment talk therapy programs where the where the emphasis is always on the personal responsibility and like you can never be trust it again because you made all these mistakes and you know like if you use like you know that kind of like keep it in the purse in the eye but they didn't do that like that that was a whole different thing which I think mm-hmm. would be very liberating and healing to know that you have this community and that the, you know like so there is a lot that they were doing that is just so um profound so when people uh, have said to me oh you know acupuncture doesn't work it's not you, you know it can't just it 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 acupuncture isn't that magical but it's like the program that they were doing was so much more than just the acupuncture Mm, mm -hmm. and all of that was happening in the context of these broader political movements yeah for you know for housing rights uh, against systemic racism against the war in vietnam i mean many many (laughs) exactly so there's um one thing that susan rosenberg told me she was a member of the may 19th organization and before that she was connected to the weather underground, but how there's been this, people look back at that period and they think the women's movement, the black liberation movement, like the, but that she talks, she's like, there were so many deep radical movements that kind of, um, that so much going on at that time that have been sort of not simplified, but like, you know, um, so she, you know, like the, um, yeah. They were interconnected. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. So uh, there's also a podcast that you did. So where can people hear that and hear more and learn more about your film? Yeah, uh, the podcast is everywhere, like wherever you can get a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, And it goes a little bit deeper into uh, Matulu's case today. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked to his lawyer and some people in this case. So so it's it's, um, 
it's available. Um, and the in Canada, the documentary should be really should be available digitally by the summer. Great. Mm-hmm. And dope as death. Dope as death. Yeah. It, it, in the U.S., it's available for free on this Vice platform called shortlist.vice.com. Okay. Oh, great. great. So, cool. Or YouTube and uh, so everywhere else except Canada, basically, is available. But soon will be available. Yes, it will cool. be available cool. soon. Cool. Thanks for taking the time to speak. Yeah, thank yeah, you. right on. That was an exchange with filmmaker Mia Donovan, whose latest work, Dope is Death, I would really encourage you to check out. This has been the 105th edition of Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thank you for listening. I'll go out with a piece of music from the film's score. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. um, And thanks to Mia for being on the podcast. Take care.